Hello, my name is Vicki, and this is Murder Sandwich, a true crime and mystery podcast. And this is episode 16, and we'll be discussing the California witch killers with my co-host, Candice. Hi, thanks for having me. Anytime. So today is Halloween, so happy Halloween to everyone out there. <laughs> and I hope everyone has a fun and safe night, unlike some of the stories that we've talked about this week. <laughs> We're not wearing our outfits, but we should have dressed up for this, We should have. Yeah, I only have my unicorn horn, and I don't even know where it is. <laughs> next time. Yeah. Next year, we'll prepare better. So today's case is about James Carson and Susan Barnes, and there are two serial killers that targeted the area of Northern California and the San Francisco Bay Area in the 1980s. So let's go grab some Halloween candy or any other spooky treat, and let's mow down on some true crime. Susan Barnes was born on September 14th, 1941, and that means she's a Virgo, and I've read that there's a lot of Virgo serial killers, and uh, I am also a Virgo, so... <laughs> My husband is also a Virgo, so I think I should be a little worried about the company I'm keeping. <laughs> yeah. Literally, I saw a list, and it was like all Virgos and Geminis, and I was like, great. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> We'll count that as a what not to do yeah. list. Yeah. We're going to talk about her early life before she met James Carson. So she was married, actually very wealthy, and she lived in Scottsdale, Arizona. She was a seemingly like normal housewife. She had two kids and all this money at her disposal. So she got bored. <laughs> so she started taking LSD and mescaline and peyote. And mescaline and peyote are really strong hallucinogenics. And she started spending time with her son's high school classmates, oh. and she regularly seduced and slept with them. Oh, so she's a <laughs> cool mom. Yeah. According to rumors, she slept with over 150 young men and boys. What? Yeah. <laughs> that's a baffling number. Yeah. Like, and that's not even getting into what she's done after yeah. the fact. That's, yes. That's a... Okay. Well, here we <laughs> Starting go. Starting off real Susan. strong. Yeah. So I don't know the time frame, but around 35, this is when her delusions and her hallucinations, or so she called them visions, would even start even when she wasn't high on drugs. It would be when she was like sober. And because of all of these allegations and the infidelity and the drug use, Susan and her husband did end up getting divorced around this time as well. That's all I really have on her like upbringing before she met James. So James Clifford Carson was born on November 28th, 1950. So Susan's about like 10 years older than him. And he grew up in Oklahoma and his father was actually a retired government official. Not really said anything about his mom, though. I couldn't find anything about her. But James spoke a lot of about his ancestors. And so he claimed that he they were Scottish immigrants and... They were on the American side in the American Revolution and then on the Union side of the Civil War. And he also said that one of his great grandmothers was a Seneca, which is a member of the Iroquois. Yes, yeah. Iroquois people. Thank you. Who originally inhabited upstate New York and were one of the five nations compromising the original Iroquois Confederacy. So he apparently talked about that a lot and was really proud of that upbringing of his. And then James met his first wife, Lynn, at the University of Iowa, and then he, they attended graduate school at the University of South Carolina. And in the 1970s, family and friends convinced the couple to move to Phoenix, Arizona. 
1977, James and Lynn now had a daughter named Jennifer, and they were still in Phoenix. And then issues started to really arise with Lynn because she was a teacher and she was trying to like get out of that hippie life and be more like professional. And he was like, nah, I'm good. And he started to sell marijuana and stay at home. Just a, a homegrown business. He's just... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, He's self-employed. <laughs> so Jennifer did later state in an interview that her father did start to abuse Lynn and use a lot more drugs. And then his first wife noticed these behavioral changes that she hadn't seen before and left with her daughter and then got a divorce. Right. And so Lynn and Jennifer then moved to Tucson, Arizona, and then the parents at this time shared custody. So that's their... That's them separately. Okay. So now we're going to talk about them coming together. And then they meet. <laughs> okay. So Susan and James, they met between mutual friends at a party. And, you know, she's a divorcee with teenage sons. And James is a busboy and a pot dealer <laughs> with a master's degree in Chinese studies and a daughter. So they met at this party. And apparently she, like, walked right up to him and saying his name was Michael. And he's like, no, no, like, my name is, my name is James. And she's like, no, no, like, I had a vision, like, your name, your name is Michael. And so from there on out, he just, like, called himself Michael. Like, he just, like, listened to just her. Just rolled with it. Yeah. So they did end up both changing their names. So now James is going to go by Michael Bear Carson. And then she's going to go by Susan Bear Carson. But not Susan <laughs> that you think of, just Susan with a Z. So S-U-Z-A-N. That's the part that gets me every time I look at this story is because James and Michael are very different. There's no there's no link. There doesn't, yeah. It's not a nickname. But to say this radical change, I'm going to change my name from Susan to Suzanne, or like, <laughs> I'm not sure where she's going with that, but I guess maybe anything with a, a Z or a Z in it has a bit, a bit of a punch, maybe. I, I just guess. thought that was super funny too. Like, that's her rebellious. I'm gonna go by a Z instead. Yeah, yeah. I'm just gonna throw that in there. So she did say that she gave Michael his name after the archangel who fought the devil in the Christian Bible. I don't know where her name came from, but. <laughs> So they did begin a relationship, which was a match basically made in hell, as Michael was looking for God, and basically Susan was looking for a disciple, is basically what people say. So she fell deeply in love with him, like, right away, and knew he was the one because she had a vision while tripping on mescaline about it. Uh, Jennifer, Michael's daughter, she did lots of interviews later, and she's actually quoted as the saying that it was almost like two magnets just shooting across the room and joining. And she also said that her father would have followed her to join ISIS or like any other cult. Like he was just a really intense follower and that he just liked the excitement. Like he would have done anything Susan wanted. Okay. Which is, it's interesting how people kind of get caught up with someone else or someone who just doesn't have their own personality, just sort of follow someone else. Mm -hmm. um, if they were in love, I guess that's one thing. But when someone wants to change who you are and you let them, that's... And like right out of the gate. Yeah. Yeah. He's <laughs> like, immediately. Oh, I'll change my name, okay. <laughs> yeah. The first day you meet someone, if that's what you're doing, then I, I mean, you do have some bigger issues for sure. For sure. So Jennifer did report that she would go visit her father and she would stay at the couple's townhouse. So Susan had a townhouse still. And among her recollections, she said Susan had like a living room with all these black walls and then like over a hundred potted plants, which like I, I we have friends like that. Yeah. <laughs> but she said that they wouldn't feed her and that they'd just be passed out on one piece of furniture, which was a waterbed of all things, and that they were just like constantly naked. 
at one point even escaped the house, called the operator to get a hold of her mom. And she even tried to tell her mom like what was happening, but she was pretty young at this time, like less younger than nine. And the only thing she really got out is that she said that Susan had hurt her and that she had asked Susan to rub her back. And so her mom like lifted up her shirt and there's all these wounds on her back. And so Lynn was afraid that he was going to harm her further or maybe like abduct her. So she just totally took Jennifer and hid. Like they moved across the country for four years trying to get rid of him. That's got to tell you something though. Women have a really strong intuition and we've got really good gut feelings. Mm -hmm. And aside from even hurting your daughter, she obviously had a feeling that she needed to get away from these people. Yeah. So, yeah. Because, like, he obviously abused her when they were married. And so if she starts seeing that in the daughter, she's probably like, screw this. Like, I'm not even going to give it a chance to escalate. Like, one and done. Which is amazing that she would even have allowed joint custody in the first place. I don't know how there was not really much to say about their divorce or how that worked Mm -hmm. out. but And in the 70s, too. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't really something that we hear about or they don't dig into those things more. But I would have... Yeah, I would have cut ties then yeah, too. Yeah, <laughs> totally. So Susan ended up experiencing even more visions, and they became wilder and wilder. And the two even tried to create their own religion. And <laughs> she would say that they wanted to become Muslims so that they could kill witches. And no, there is nothing in Islamic religion about killing witches, or it's actually like against their practice to take hallucinogenic drugs. And there's definitely nothing about murder. So I'm not sure like where she even tied those two things together. Like she'd obviously not even read about anything to do with that. Yeah, that's that's an odd choice to to claim a religion as your own and skew. I mean, that's we yeah. hear so often of people who skew what's in the Bible to kind of fit their their agenda. But this is a different <laughs> level, it seems. This is yeah. not even skewing. This is just calling it one thing, but it's actually another. It's yeah. She actually ended up calling it straight up Islam. And but it was just like an elaborate justification for the future crimes that they would commit, obviously. Um, but their basis was that homosexuality, abortion, and witchcraft were causes for death, but drug use, murder, theft, anarchy, and any other crimes were just like totally fine. <laughs> like those, like those are the. Th- I don't even have like what. There's no words. There's no words that people can justify. Murder's cool. You know, that's part of my religion, but you know, if if, if you, you're gay, yeah, that's just not <laughs> we'll we'll kill you. That's not okay. <laughs> yeah. The so, logic doesn't make sense. Exactly. So by nineteen seventy-eight, uh, she sold her townhouse in Scottsdale and they began traveling around Europe. Along the way, they wanted to preach about their religion and their crusade against witchcraft. And unfortunately it just didn't catch on. Maybe they just didn't have, you know, the likeness that Charles Manson did, but no one joined them. <laughs> It's funny that you say Charles Manson, though, because if you see pictures of of James or Michael, he does have he does. a little Charles vibe. I was a little surprised at mm-hmm. that. And so yeah. to hear that it was actually Susan who was leading the charge and not him, my, my brain couldn't comprehend that. It seemed like it should have been the other way around just based on For sure. appearances. So don't yeah. judge a book by its cover. I also saw a picture and I was like, he totally could pass as Charles Manson, but also like a hairy 70s guy with a long beard, dark hair. Like, they all kind of look... (laughs) It's just just the the trend of the times, I guess. Yeah. So they were hoping to become citizens in Israel when they were in Europe. Um, 
But Jennifer said that later in an interview, so I'm not sure if they actually ever went to Israel or what was going on, but I'm not surprised by that statement, I guess. They did end up getting married on this trip, and they got married at Stonehenge beneath the light of moonlight, which is just so bizarre to me because that's a pagan, like, worship site. Witches go there, right? Like, that's a – Yeah, exactly. So, like, pagan is, like, basically based off of, like – you know, lots of pagan lore about like witches and yeah. all of that stuff. And they got married at moonlight at a pagan, but they don't like witches. That doesn't, yeah. <laughs> like, I, okay. They did run out of money shortly after. So by 1980, they returned to the US. And this is when they moved to the hot Ashbury neighborhood of San Francisco, California. And this is where they continued to use drugs and party their life away. Which, like, she must have had a decent amount of money to be able to travel for a whole year. Yeah, I don't quite understand the the talk of her being from wealth. So was was it her that was wealthy or was it her husband? I think her it was her husband, husband. And she's just, yeah. And he was, he just got a payout or maybe she was getting alimony. Yeah. Who knows? I don't think the, the, the homegrown pot business would have been... <laughs> Booming. Yeah, so it had to have been from if something. If she did get alimony, if that marriage at Stonehenge was legal, which I don't think it was, but if it was, then her alimony would have stopped. Right. So, And maybe that's why, it, if it wasn't legal, that's probably why, is because she knew yeah. she needed to get some kind of an income coming in. So, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. So this whole kind of madness that they're resulting, there's actually a name for it. So it's called like folie a deux. It's French. So I'm probably butchered that to any people who are listening and know French, but clinically it's called like shared psychotic disorder. It's like really rare, but it's basically when two or more people like share the same delusion, but there's usually like a passive partner and then like a dominant partner. So in this case, the dominance was Susan and the passive was. Do they say if that is fueled or caused by drug use or is it can that, be it can be okay. yeah for sure hmm. and it it seems like jennifer did say that like susan was very like manipulative and her dad was like very easily manipulated and he had his own mental health problems and just wrong place wrong relationship it seemed like yeah. like she just really took over they moved to san francisco and they met this lady named karen barnes at a party and no relation to susan barnes coincidentally just have the same name and they end up moving into her apartment after meeting her, which is like, I'm confused. She's only 23 and they're like late 30s, like they're in their 30s, right? So like kind of weird. She's pretty young, straight out of Georgia, like moving to San Francisco. Yeah. And I mean, that being said, though, San Francisco does have a reputation of being kind of a free spirited city. People just sort of kind of a one love sort of area. That's fair. Um, even though this was the 80s, it still seemed to yeah. be that way. So for sure. Maybe, but there's a lot of like commitment after meeting people for the first time in this whole story. It's shocking, <laughs> but yeah, I like I don't know just... even know how that happened. But yeah. here they are and they're living with Karen and she's from Georgia. She's trying to be an actress in San Francisco. La la la. She's totally part of the like free love hit me movement too. So they have that in common. Michael and Susan offered for her to join their relationship and be polyamorous and wanted her to be Michael's second wife. And she just was like, nah, like this is crossing a line for her. Like she's not that type of hippie. Coincidentally, according to Susan, she's on a hike and she now she has a vision to return home and to end the life of her roommate. 
coincidentally when she declines this polyamorous relationship. Right. So we can just, we obviously know what the real thing is. She cannot handle being turned down. Yeah. Yeah. So apparently she said this vision told her that Karen was a witch this whole time. And Susan said that she had been psychic since childhood and that she claimed that she needed to kill Karen because Karen was a psychic vampire witch who was blocking Susan's own psychic abilities. A psychic vampire witch. Yes. (laughs) Okay. I just wanted to clear that up and make sure that I understood that she's not just a witch, not a vampire, and not a psychic. She's all three combined. So that's a pretty... Yeah. And she's limiting Susan's abilities. Okay. (laughs) Well, but I got that whole thing out without laughing. Till that's the end. impressive. I know it's it just <laughs> it speaks to just how absurd these visions are. Because yeah. if you were a psychic and you had these amazing abilities and you didn't know until I don't know how long they lived together that you were living with a psychic vampire witch <laughs> until a month in or, or whatever it was, maybe you're not as psychic as you think you are. Or, exactly. Yeah. Something's <laughs> something's, something's not. Yeah. <laughs> So March of 1981, Susan then commanded Michael to hit Karen over the head with a frying pan as she was making herself some food. The frying pan didn't do the job. Like, she didn't die. So Susan then commanded Michael to stab her, and he did 13 times, claiming it was self-defense. How is that self-defense? Yeah, that doesn't... I just, all the justifications don't make sense. You're justifying that you're doing this because of religion. You're justifying you're murdering someone while they're making food, mind you, because you're defending yourself. It just seems like they're just sort of throwing any excuse at the wall to see what sticks. And yeah, like, no, it's not self-defense. She obviously had your back turned. You hit her with a frying pan. Even <laughs> even if it were self-defense, like I don't know what the rules are and what they look at in the legal system, but 13 times Overkill. to stab someone is more than self-defense, yeah. even if you were really threatened by this woman who was a friend of yours. Yeah, exactly. So um, they cover her body and then they draw like all over the walls. And so Susan like left her full name on the wall, like written in her own handwriting, which obviously led the friends of Karen to tip off the police about their new roommates and their odd belief system. This resulted in them obviously being prime suspects and they were, but they're gone. So they're unable to be found. the Bear Carsons <laughs> fled to the this mountain hideout near Grants Pass, Oregon. And Susan called it Allah's Mountain. But they were kicked out pretty quickly by a park ranger. Yeah. <laughs> and later, a good Samaritan let them stay in his like treehouse in like this middle of nowhere, right? Um, but he kicked them out pretty quick due to their strange behavior. Because yeah. they were just probably doing peyote up there and were acting real weird. He's probably just thinking, what on earth did I get into? <laughs> get out of my trio. Yes. So this didn't sit right with Susan. She didn't like it. So they robbed his house, took a handgun, and then set his house on fire. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So this poor good Samaritan just... There's so many people who are doing good deeds for them, and they're just... And just like that. And they're lucky. Like a switch. Like, they're lucky. Like, mm-hmm. we get into some other things that make them very lucky. Like, it's just actually crazy like, that, that all this stuff has happened to them. And they're not lucky because 
they're smart. God is making them lucky. Yes. Like let's just be, <laughs> let's make that clear. It's just, yeah, it's just sheer luck. Literally. So spring of 1982, they now move to Alder Point, California, where they live and work on a marijuana farm in Humboldt County. According to other workers on this farm, the Carsons were complete anarchists who advocated revolution and then predicted that there would be another nuclear apocalypse soon. <laughs> and they began to instantly have issues with people, not shockingly, one of them being a friend of the farm owner and his name is Stephen Clark. He ended up cussing Susan out one night, just like over her shit. And she disliked his loud voice and heavy drinking. And she thought that this behavior was a complete disrespect towards God. So they just figured that Stephen Clark must be a witch. Of course. Which, by the way, it's warlock if it's a man. So <laughs> I just don't understand why they hate witches so much. I just, <laughs> what to happened? me, a witch is kind of like a bee. Like, if you don't bug them, they won't bug you. So just stay on the good side of witches and right? you have nothing to worry about. It's a great analogy, actually. <laughs> so May of 1982, just a couple months after they arrive, Michael does shoot Stevens using an old pistol filled with expired bullets. It took two bullets in the head to kill him. And then in an attempt to prevent the body from being discovered, they covered it in chicken manure, burned it, and then buried the body in the woods. But they did a shit job. So the literally, like literally, and the body was eventually located two weeks later. And they buried him actually right near his identification. So they were, he was like very quickly identified. Now they actually didn't suspect them in this one. They like didn't know who did this, but they were gone anyway. So we'll get to that later. But they, they're not prime suspects in this. They, they just have no idea who did this. Right. So they know who the who the person is, the victim, but they just don't have any suspects right now. Yeah. Okay. Fast forward now. That was May. This is now November of the same year in 1982. Michael was actually picked up by the police in LA after an acquaintance saw him hitchhiking, knew him from like Karen, but he was freed due to police error and detectives hadn't even questioned him yet. Like the, he just gets released. And he left evidence behind. He did a mugshot there. They left his, he left his address and he left a gun in the police car. <laughs> just slips out of his pocket. Just, oops, my, my stole, was it the stolen gun from yeah. the treehouse too? So it's I, just, I assume so, but yeah. that guy in the treehouse is never, he's never talked about again. So I don't know what kind of tracking they had on the, I assume that it's from that. Probably. So a couple months later, in January of 1983, the Carsons were hitchhiking near Bakersfield, California now, and they were given a ride by the 30-year-old John Charles Hellier, and he's in a pickup truck, and he's heading to Santa Rosa to just visit some friends. So while they're in the truck, Susan has this divine calling that John's a witch and has to be killed, but there are also reports that John touched her leg and that she just like didn't like that. So while they're driving down the U.S. Route 101 in Sonoma County, an argument and physical fight like totally break out between them while they're driving. So they pull over. They're just on the side of this like river road. And Susan stabs John while he's fighting with Michael. So while they're struggling over a gun, actually. So Michael ends up getting it and shoots him, shoots him like point blank in front of motorists, though. Right, because they're on the side of the road. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So one of them ended up contacting police at, like, a nearby fruit stand telephone. Because there's no cell phones back then. 
Right. So they stole John's truck and they do this like high speed chase and they eventually crash into a ditch and then they're both finally arrested. Now, I did find an article about John's brother, Danny, and he later stated in an interview that it was actually a UPS driver that was the one who made the phone call. And he was right behind the vehicle when the whole scuffle was breaking out. And he actually saw like saw John's last words, which were help me, brother. And Danny believes that John thought that it was Danny, that the, it was the UPS driver, because Danny worked for them at the time. Oh, my God. Which is just really sad. That is sad. Well, and it, again, someone who's doing a good deed. He's picking up a hitchhiker, helping them get to where they want to go. And who would have thought that you would have come across someone who has these visions and would decide that you're now a witch and you should be killed? Like, that's just... Yeah, I feel horrible for him. That's horrible. Yeah, it's really sad. Like, what's the point? And just even if he did touch your leg, like, just, you know, tell him, like, you don't like that or you're in a pickup truck. You're There's only probably three seats in there. So how did he touch your leg? Did exactly. He, did he rub upon it? Was he changing gears? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or was it a, a, hey, welcome to my truck? That kind of a thing. Like, just a, a pat on the leg, I think. Yeah, she. I don't understand where where the trigger is for these visions. It just seems like she's just on this whole unreal path that just doesn't make sense, and there's no logic around it. Which it's probably just schizophrenia. Yeah, probably. (laughs) It's hard to wrap your head around when people do things without any purpose, and to try and justify it doesn't make sense. No, her justifications don't make sense at all. So thankfully they are finally arrested and the couple announced that they would only confess to the murders if they could do it in a televised press conference. And they said like real religious leaders do. I did that in quotes for everyone because what? (laughs) So March 10th, 1983, a press conference was held and it got pretty weird and pretty wild pretty fast. The pair ranted and raved about George Orwell's 1984 book, which obviously was based off of the next year. They said how President Reagan is the devil and why all witches need to be killed. And they said that Allah told Susan where to kill the witches and that Michael was destined to be the executioner for each and every one of them. They answered questions for six hours on KGO TV and the San Francisco Chronicle, and they both had smiles on their faces the entire time. They never once expressed any kind of remorse. They stated the motive behind each murder was that witches and even confessed to killing Clark Stevens, which police hadn't linked to them yet. So they were like, okay, great. Now we know what's going on with that. They claimed to be pacifists, which what a joke and vegetarian and yoga practitioners who converted to Islam and described themselves as vegetarian Muslim warriors. Right. But also like six hours. Like I just, I can't understand what could have been talked about for six hours. And at what point do you just kind of pull the plug where you just think, you know, we probably don't need to be here. We don't need need to pay people to be here to report on this for six hours. Was it live? Like, that's the thing that like, I, I should have probably looked into it more. But when I said six hours, I'm like, well, like, did they film for six hours? Was it live for six hours? I think times were different. It probably was live for six hours. It was a press conference. Yeah. 
crazy. Like nuts. And like what time slot did they get for six hours? Like, like was 10 this, to six? Was this daytime watching or was this like, you know, prime? Were you taking away? I don't know what the hit shows in the 80s would have been, but. I have no idea. But were you taking away from, from some of those shows? Jeopardy, I'm sure, was on in the 80s. So <laughs> yeah, let's just say Jeopardy. Just the Jeopardy hour. Yeah, that's absurd. Very absurd. So this, after this conference is when the media dubbed them the San Francisco witch killers or California witch killers. So the Carsons also state that they killed Karen because they believe she had made a false conversion to their religion and was draining Susan of her health and yogic powers. (laughs) I didn't know that yogis had powers. Like I just assumed that they just taught us how to stretch really good and, and stay limber, but apparently (laughs) they also have powers. Their justifications for the second and third murders were that Clark Stevens had allegedly sexually assaulted Susan and that John Heller had allegedly called her a witch and sexually abused her. Neither of which I think are true. That's it's interesting how now all of a sudden someone's being murdered for calling her a witch. Like they're just, they're so against this this like, word or married this being. at Stonehenge. Yeah. <laughs> so like And also you have these crazy psychic abilities. You probably are a witch. Right? So it's weird because usually serial killers gang up on each other when this happens, but they stayed together. They never turned on each other, like not once, which is just really really unusual. Like they recounted their crimes to the cameras together. They supported each other the whole time. They were totally on each other's side the entire time, even when separated in interrogation. They're in love. It's just weird. Despite all of this footage of them confessing, when they eventually got to trial, they actually pled not guilty. Which I don't even know. They completely recanted their statements, but there's still physical and testimonial evidence against them, right? How can you do that, though? Like, I don't understand that because we hear about so many people who are, I guess, give a false confession and are still imprisoned for false confessions. But when you choose to give a confession for six hours televised and then decide when the trial comes about that you're going to say, oh, no, we're not guilty, where, what does your legal team say to you at that point? Because I feel yeah. like it couldn't be construed as a false confession, but... The way that I understand it is they would have pled not guilty to the charges of like murder because to them they were doing a service to the world. Oh, okay. So I think to them it's not they're they don't they're pleading not guilty to murder because to them it wasn't murder. It was like they're saving Okay. They so should they were getting that, hung up on the yeah, the, the definition or like yeah. the, the the terminology of it because they don't feel like they did anything wrong. So yeah. they're saying that they're not guilty. Yeah. I see. I actually recently had a conversation with a criminal lawyer and I I actually asked about it cuz I said like when you are defending someone who did com- commit this murder, do they tell you as a lawyer like yeah, I did it but I'm going to plead not guilty? And he said they never admit it, but the whole thing is you plead not guilty cuz you have to prove that they were not able to commit this murder no matter what. And he so in this case it makes me think, yeah, well, we confessed to it. Not legally, by the way, they didn't sign a confession letter, right? Maybe their Miranda rights weren't given to them at this time and that's why they maybe had this loophole to plead not guilty. Yeah. But to them, yeah, it's probably like well, we're not guilty for murder as like a senseless murder. This was a justified murder to them. Okay. So their lawyers probably are like they committed this murder, but they thought that they were doing the right thing. Right. Kind of like when there's like a mental illness or, yeah. you know, they, they acknowledge that 
they did this, but they were not in sound mind to know what they were doing. Yeah. Okay. I'm not sure if the insanity, I'm assuming the insanity plea existed at this time, but there's no talk of it in this case. Right. But I assume it existed because it is the 80s. It's not like that long ago. I would think so. Yeah. But I guess they never, they didn't think that they were insane. They thought that they were yeah. doing the right thing according to their religion. Exactly. So they did find a, a kill list at some point, And the kill list had like Ronald Reagan on it and Johnny Carson from The Tonight Show. So they had that in their evidence. They had Susan's handwriting on the first crime scene. They had their actual handwriting in that kill list. And they had eyewitnesses to the last crime. So like all this physical and testimonial evidence... It was very obvious that they committed these murders. Even during the trial, Michael also wrote a letter to this famous journalist called Herb Cain about how no one cared that he had rid San Francisco of its most dangerous witch. Who was Karen, apparently. I guess so. Okay. And then not shockingly, they were convicted of all three murders. And it only lasted three days, this trial. And they were given three life sentences on top of each other. So 75 years each. Jennifer, Michael's daughter, described the trial as a complete zoo. Like, it was nuts, apparently. And after the guilty verdict, Susan stood up and screamed, What is my crime? To be beautiful? To be an artist? (laughs) Oh, now she's an artist as well. Okay. She has a lot of talents, apparently. Yeah. And they're all in her head. Yeah. Even to this day, they have no remorse for their crimes. They had no remorse in the trial. They had no remorse after. There was no remorse at all. They do not care. They think they were doing a service, which is baffling. It is. Again, there's no words because it just makes zero sense. And you're right. They did get lucky along the way. The fact that they were able to... He even got caught. Yeah. Like the police literally had him. I found a whole article about Michael's daughter, Jennifer. And so I have a couple things about her. She actually found out about her father's crimes when she was only in the third grade. And a year later, she was reading newspaper stories about how the murders happened, but she didn't really understand it. So she actually was looking up words in the dictionary to understand their meanings, which is just horrific. The court proceedings started when she was only nine. So she was like really young when they like decided to like disappear. Right. But they lasted until she was 19 because of all of the appeals. And she said she's absolutely lived in fear, still has trauma. And she's actually made several suicide attempts in her life because of her father, which is just like actually heartbreaking. Michael did send letters to her the whole time that were very positive. But as soon as she spoke out about her desire to for him to stay in prison, then the letters got really scary and dark, borderline threatening to her. And then she just openly petitioned against them ever receiving parole because she just believes that they would totally kill again. But she went on to support her mother. Her mom did continue teaching, but obviously is going through therapy to her, her trauma as well. And Jen did earn her master's degree in counseling, and now she runs her own suicide hotline. So she's really trying to give back because of what happened to her. And I thought that was really great. Yeah. Absolutely. Because you have to imagine if you were involved with either of them in any way, you might have like a form of survivor's guilt Mm -hmm. or, or just, it just messes with your head. I'm sure of just like what could have happened to you and 
what did happen to other people. And mm-hmm. now with the idea of them continually up for parole, you think because of how illogical all of their crimes were, you could just be someone walking along the street and exactly. be attacked by them. Like there really is no rhyme or reason. And so how do you prepare yourself for that? Like that's a very scary and daunting thought. And she probably didn't remember some of the weird things that she saw when she was a kid there. Like she probably didn't understand them till she was older and she would look back on them. And that's traumatic in itself to maybe have like a happy memory or have something that isn't a big deal to you. But then you remember details. We know that that was really messed up what happened. And so, yeah, she probably dealt with that for a really long time. It's just, yeah, it's sad. But I'm glad she got out of it. There's nothing mentioned about Susan's boys. I don't, I'm assuming they just don't talk to her. So, which go, don't talk to her. She's nuts. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Probably best just to, you know, just write that one off. And yeah. Yeah. I, you know what? I'm not surprised they didn't come out and say anything. They were probably like, we don't want anything to do with her. Like we are super good. Well, and I mean, obviously, if if she separated from her husband and there was no talk of them even sharing custody, mm-hmm. and maybe there were courts in, in place that were monitoring someone's ability to be a parent and she never... Well, I don't think I'd want to talk to my that. mom after she slept with like 150 of my friends. <laughs> That's true too. That probably puts a little bit of a, a rift in, in the relationship. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's a very good point. <laughs> it said it was a rumor, but if it's true, my God. <laughs> Rumors come from somewhere. So exactly. whether that's, you know, maybe it wasn't 100, maybe it was 50. <laughs> but I mean, obviously she was she was trying to... I don't. Who knows? Gather some, some kind of youth. attention. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. She she gets her powers from them. Maybe. Yeah. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> maybe. But yeah. A book was written about them from this underground journalist named Richard D. Reynolds, and he suspects that they are actually responsible for many other deaths in the United States and Europe because they were over there for a year. So there's actually like a list of people's names that he figures that they maybe were involved in, but they have no evidence at all. So they're just all cold cases. But their name changes. Now, this is what I was saying before. It actually benefited them. So when the police were looking for Susan and Michael Carson, they were also looking for Susan and Michael Bears. They didn't realize that they were all the same people. Oh. So they actually never appeared in any criminal database. There was no driver's license. There was no valid marriage license. So they thought they were looking for two separate couples between Oregon and California. They never tied them together. So that's why, like, when he got put into the police, they didn't understand if he was the same person because his name was different. Were they legal name changes? Apparently, yeah. So how would there not be a... I know. That's weird to me that there wouldn't be some kind of a connection. Or maybe the database was different back then. And maybe it wasn't legal, but from the sounds of it, like, it was, and they were really confused. And so they didn't even think it was the same person. So that's how they were so lucky in getting away with some of the stuff, is they didn't realize... Crazy now, to do me. you think she was smart enough to have thought that out of changing mm. the names to be able to thwart the authorities? I don't know. I want to say no. I think it was just like a happy coincidence. Right. But who knows? Maybe yeah. she was smart enough. Would you know that the system is like that? Probably not. You'd have to have some kind of insider because I'm I'm shocked that it wouldn't have been connected. So yeah. I'm sure she wouldn't have thought it out. Yeah. When I read that, I was like, it makes sense. Wow. The 80s and 70s were like wild. <laughs> yeah. It was just the Wild West. Basically just 
anything goes and there was just the, the tracking systems just weren't there. You think about it. Cause if that were to happen now, we just have so many resources yeah. and it just seems unreal that someone would be able to just sort of skip town. And I mean, the, and the U S is a little bit different too. I, I imagine for just, sure geographically yeah. and how everything is connected. And I always say that, like, like when someone disappears, they're like, oh, they ran off and had a new life. I'm like, how do you just run off and have a new life? Like, it you need impossible. A, you need a new social insurance or security number. You need ID. Like, how do you get that? Like, without a birth certificate, you'd have to find yeah. someone to make that for you. And how do you find someone to make that for you? Do you just walk downtown? Hey, I need a fake ID. <laughs> I, don't, like, I don't know. So I don't, it was obviously easier back then than it is now. I think so. Yeah. Me, or just working cash jobs. Yeah. That was probably more of a thing back then. Whereas now I'm sure cash jobs or getting paid under the table are all not legal jobs. So that's true. You have to kind of be a little bit mindful of that too. Yeah. Not that they cared about being legal. <laughs> Not that they cared about that. Earlier, I mentioned that Jennifer was making sure that they didn't get out of prison. And the reason for that is there was an effort to declutter many prisons in California around 2015. And so new legislation had passed to allow inmates over the age of 60 to apply for early parole. So at this time, Michael and Susan had been in prison for over 30 years, and they were not expected to have parole until 2059. So in 2015, now Michael's 64, he refused to even begin the process because he remained very steadfast in his belief that he had done no wrong by riddling the world of witches. Susan was 73, and she actually didn't immediately decline. A media frenzy ensued, which you basically united all the victim's family and Jennifer and everyone, as well as all their own children, like even hers, in an effort to keep them totally in prison. So after this, she recanted and is going to stay in prison. They have not seen each other since their sentencing in 1983, but they still send letters to each other. Oh. And that's their love story. I'm surprised that they're able to stay connected. You would think that when two people are convicted of crimes, that maybe there would be some kind of a purposeful disconnect. Like you you guys can't communicate or or maybe their letters are read and they just make sure that there's no... Not that they're <laughs> conspiring to do anything from where they are, but yeah, you would just think that they would try and, yeah. and just sort of nip that in the butt and just not, not entertain it any further. Yeah. And like they, I don't think they can talk on the phone, prison to prison. I don't think you can. So it's just letters. Yeah. I just, you think that Michael would snap out of it at some point, but to him, it just seems like he's such a follower. I just thought that he would have, he would have snapped and like turned on her or something and been like, no, that was wrong. But he didn't. Well, yeah, especially because if you're in prison, you probably come up with your own gang and crew and and follow them now. So you'd think, yeah, that something would would have changed, but who knows what the letters say. Maybe it's just her trying to, to rein him back in and convince him to join the fold again. Talking about all the witches that are in her prison. Yeah. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Very much so. This girl, she came into my shower and <laughs> oh my god. She's a witch. <laughs> I couldn't even imagine. I wonder if she's getting getting told by some of the girls in prison because she's pretty old now, like 73. Yeah. Like she's probably just crazy old Susan with the Z. Yeah. <laughs> with the, the gray, the one gray streak, I imagine. Just, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I wouldn't want to be in prison with her, honestly. No, no. But, but amazing though, that there is an issue of overcrowding in prisons that they're now just looking at an age group and saying, well, these people were going to, to look to give them parole. Cause 
I don't know about you, but I still wouldn't feel confident about someone who's 60 years old, who I know has murdered three people for no reason, in my opinion, just being released. I think it should be based on like what you're in there for. Like there's still people in prison right now for having an ounce of marijuana on them. Yeah. And marijuana is legal in Canada and in lots of other countries and lots of states in the United States. There's no reason for those people to still be in prison. It's a joke. People murder people and get smaller sentences than people who got caught with marijuana. Yes. Like in Canada, you can have up to four plants in your backyard and people are getting arrested or were, are still in jail for that. Yes. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So why don't you let those people out? Yeah. Let's look at that first rather than the, the Susans Murders. and the Michaels of the world. They should, if your parole is until 2059, you're looking at releasing them in 2015. Like they're sent, they haven't even finished their second sentence. Yeah. No, they should for sure die in prison. Yeah, I think. And I I mean, and by the sounds of it, they will. If you have no remorse and when your parole comes around and you still think that you did nothing wrong, you're not. You won't get out. You're not going to see the outside anytime soon. No. That's good news. Good for them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just, I'm completely baffled by this whole story of just how these two people seemingly had this connection, like how maybe meant for each other. I say that very loosely because- But it's so dark. It is. And just how she just found the right person who was just very moldable and would do whatever she told him to. And then all hell came from that. It's just, it's unreal that that can happen and that these connections get made and someone just so willingly does whatever someone else tells them to, even if it's murder- for and sure. so I think it's, again, just being aware of the company you keep, really, <laughs> because, I mean, this thing went south very, very quickly. And the the mental health and the drugs surely didn't help that these people who were just trying to do good things for them and help them out just had a really unfortunate ending. And yeah. It's interesting to me because if the Susan hanging around with her son's friends was true it makes me think that she was hoping that they would be moldable and that you know michael was even nine years younger than her and so she to me was like maybe looking for a certain type to get something more out of her life to her she was like a stay-at-home mom and a housewife and maybe she lacked that control that she wanted and couldn't mold her husband because he's the breadwinner and he brings the money and he's the dominant one in the relationship so it's like she flipped and she's like no i want that it obviously went way too far obviously very obviously but it made me think that that's maybe what she wanted she wanted to be in control to the point past the line where there's a boundary that she wanted to be so in control to make Michael murder these people. Because technically, other than maybe that one stabbing, she didn't really do anything. Like, she didn't commit the murders. Michael did, but by her influence. He didn't think that they were witches. He just listened to her. Yeah. Which, again, with the comparative of... Charles Manson, just because of the timing yeah, um, and kind of on the heels of the 70s, similar thing where he didn't do anything. It was, I mean, he's in prison because he had followers who did yeah. what he told them His to. His family. And so it's, it's, I suppose, the justification of the system that they acknowledge who is sort of calling the shots and that although Susan didn't really do 
anything, she was the one who was telling Mm -hmm. him what to do. And they both got equal sentences, which is good. makes sense to me. But you bring up a good point. Charles Manson was before this. He was the first person to ever be convicted of murder, but not actually commit the murder. So this, his case probably influenced the fact that Susan did get three life sentences with Michael, because to my knowledge, she only stabbed John. Right. She didn't shoot anything to do with Clark and she didn't do anything with Karen either. She just yeah. told him to do those things. So it's great because she should not be out. She's, in my opinion, worse out of the two almost. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, she's erratical. When you can't anticipate what someone's trigger is going to be or you don't know with some – I guess serial killers, they, you kind of know they're looking for a type. They're, mm-hmm. they're targeting a certain type of person. Yeah. Whatever that may be. But Whereas they don't even with this, have one. there's no rhyme. There's no reason. There's no understanding or anticipating who will be next. So for that reason, keep yeah. them in there. <laughs> for sure. I'm surprised they haven't killed people in prison. Maybe they have. <laughs> Maybe they have. <laughs> there are lots of witches in prison, Vicky. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Well, thank you for listening to episode 16 of Murder Sandwich, a true crime and mystery podcast about the California witch killers. And a big thank you to Candace for joining me today. Thank you. So again, happy Halloween to anyone out there. And if you want to stay on top of the podcast, then follow Murder Sandwich podcast on Instagram. And other than that, then I will see you next time. Bye. Mm-hmm. <laughs>